0: Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were an action, what kind of action would you be? I would be take flight. I am going to focus today on a few different versions of Orpheus and Eurydice, mostly because Leah and I saw *Hades Town*, which is a brilliant retelling of the tragic tale. I highly recommend it. It is very powerful and deeply felt. I want to touch on the original Greek myth of Orpheus, who in some versions is the son of Apollo, and Apollo gifted him a lyre and he sang and played music very well. It was moving and everyone would stop and listen to him. It would capture the attention of all flora and fauna. It's spoken that trees and boulders would even move themselves to get closer to listen to what he had to sing about and to hear his melodies. One of these occasions of him singing and playing on his lyre had captured the attention of a wood nymph, Eurydice and during the entire interaction, he's playing this music and singing the song and they're not breaking eye contact and they fall in love with one another and they get married and they're not married for long because Eurydice is bitten by a venomous snake and she dies. So she goes down to the underworld ruled by Hades. Orpheus goes to find her. He comes to a wall. In some versions, he plays a melody that softens the wall and he's able to get through. He makes a bargain with Hades under the condition he can take Eurydice back to the living world, but only if, as they're departing, they go out single file, Orpheus in front, Eurydice behind. Orpheus cannot look back at Eurydice until both of them are fully in sunlight. Well, as it ends... Orpheus makes it to the living world, he's out in the sunlight, and when he turns around in his elation to share the moment with Eurydice, she's still partially in the other world. She's still in shadow, she's still in darkness, and since she wasn't also in sunlight, he is sealed off from her, he can't get to her. And so he falls into despair, perishes eventually himself after many years of grieving and it said that where he lay to rest, you can still hear his music playing. It is a very moving tale, and I think for me, especially seeing this scenario played out in this very beautifully done, late 1800s-themed musical, I think the part that really captivated me most was how love transcends realms and how orpheus was traveling to the underworld through the world of spirits trying to find her in the hades town musical eurydice doesn't necessarily die she pretty much sells her soul to hades And she takes a one-way ticket to the Underworld. She cries out Orpheus's name on her way to the Underworld. Orpheus doesn't hear it because he's working on his song. He has this song inside of him that he wants to get out. And since he's touched by the gods, he sings in this higher key, this higher octave, than anyone else in the play. And I really liked that touch. But Hermes, the messenger god, comes to Orpheus and he says, did you not hear her cry out for you? And he said, no, I didn't, but I will go to her. Since he is almost too ethereal to receive a ticket to the underworld, he makes his own way. He walks there through darkness. It's a long trip, but he's able to make it because his inner light shines so bright that he's able to see enough of the way. That's how I translated it. And I really liked him going into this dark world. They had these flickering lights that drop down and are swinging and it's very disorienting. There's lots of strobes. And it was so cool as he's singing this song. I was frankly brought to tears. I cried a lot during this musical. It was sad at parts, but mostly because it was just so beautifully done. And I am really attracted to the idea of reaching for somebody who is on a different plane. My version of that would be through my dreams, which I do talk about on previous episodes. But I want to move in to this African-American traditional tale of Dicey and Orpus. In this story, it references the land of the golden slipper, which in African-American lore was translated as heaven because they believed that in heaven you wore golden slippers. This version of Dicey and Orpus can be found in 45 spine-tingling tales, even more short and shivery, retold by Robert D. Souci, illustrated by Catherine Koval and Jacqueline Rogers. Back in the old days, there was a girl named Dicey who was born on a plantation. She was courted by a man named Jim Orpus, a wandering fiddle player who could make music like no one else on earth. Stories went around that when he played a tune, rabbits would come out to dance, and mules in the field would stop dead in the furrows and bray as if they were singing along. If he ever wanted a mess of fish, he'd just sit beside the creek and begin scratching away with his bow. Pretty soon, fish were leaping into the air, then flopping on the ground around him. Then he'd set aside his fiddle, pick up what he needed, and throw back the rest. Now, Orpus was mighty sweet on Dicey from the moment he saw her. She was shy at first, but when he played a soft, sweet tune for her, she would sing along. If she didn't know the song, she'd sing whatever words his music brought to mind. And Orpus seemed to like her made-up songs best of all. At first, she couldn't say how much she loved Orpus, but she sang her feelings clear enough. Soon they were married, all proper and regular. Now, all this happened so long ago that the railroad was a brand new, spick-and-span thing. Not knowing it was dangerous, Dicey sat down on the track one day waiting for Orpus, because she thought she heard him fiddling in the far, far away. But what she really heard was the engine whistle. Before anyone could do anything, the engine came whistling and roaring around the bend and smashed the poor girl. After she was buried, Jim Morpus wept and wailed something terrible. He sat himself down on her grave and he fiddled so sadly that folks for miles around thought their hearts were going to break. Then he became angry because Dicey had been taken away so sudden-like and he couldn't do a thing about it. He began to fiddle up such anger that the mountain shook and the trees splintered and the ground trembled and crumbled underneath him. Orpus tumbled down into a big old cave. He walked and he walked through the darkness toward a speck of light. Finally, he reached the entrance to the land of the Golden Slipper, the place where all the good folks go when they die. When he got there, he found an angel who spread his wings and wouldn't let Jim Orpus pass. The angel said that only dead folks go through the shining door into the land of the Golden Slipper. Then Orpus carried on something fierce, saying he just had to get his dicey back or he might as well be dead. At first, the angel wasn't having any part of this, but Orpus took up his fiddle and played such powerful, sweet music that the angel began to weep and holler. And finally he said, All right, I'll call Dicey here and you can lead her back the way you came. But you've got to be sure you don't look back, not once, until you're both standing in the sunlight again. You're only going to get this one chance. Well, Orpus agreed to this. He'd have agreed to anything to get his sweet Dicey back. So the angel told him, Turn around and don't you look back or you'll be sorry. The angel called Dicey's name. Pretty soon, Jim Orpus heard her voice behind him asking what was going on, though he didn't dare look. He knew that Dicey had seen him because she kept crying his name over and over and clapping her hands excitedly. Orpus heard the angel say how she could go back with Orpus, provided he didn't once look back at her till they were both up to the top again. You go first, Jim, said Dicey. I'll follow. He was so happy to be near her again, he almost turned around then and there but he remembered what the angel had told him, so he kept looking ahead. Back they went the way he had come. All the while, Orpus played a sweet tune, and Dicey sang along with him. At last, they reached the place where her grave had crumbled down. He was all set to climb out, but he was so eager to see her, and they were so close to the finish that his heart got the better of his head. He turned around. For just a second, he saw her sweet, remembered face. Then she gave a terrible cry and vanished like a comet back into the dark. Dicey! Jim Orpus cried and ran after her. But he couldn't spot the gleam that had led him to the Golden Gate earlier. And when he turned around, he couldn't see the place where the grave had crumbled. Not knowing what to do, he just began walking, calling Dicey's name over and over and playing his fiddle to ease his misery. The next day, when people looked for Jim Orpus, they didn't find him. Dirt had fallen into the big hole where Dicey's grave had been and had filled it up. Nobody ever saw Jim Orpus again. But folks in those parts say that if you go into a cemetery where only black folks have been laid to rest and press your ear to the ground, you can hear Jim Orpus's fiddle way down deep as he searches for Dicey in the land of the Golden Slipper. And I think that one ends a little more optimistic because the search is continued. It's unsatisfactory in so much as you're hoping for that love ever after, love conquers all, and it's not really the case here. But I think that's why it's so good, is because it's so real. To me, the story of death being a barrier or a wall between two people is a real thing. And it's easy to understand the regret and the misery and the grief in the story. So an element of the more traditional tale, Orpheus is at a festival or at a solstice party and he's playing this music. And when he and Eurydice make eye contact they can't tear their gazes from one another. She is this beautiful wood nymph and they fall quickly in love. And this is just from greca.com. Their wedding day dawned bright and clear. Hymenaeus, the god of marriage, blessed their marriage and then a great feast followed. The surroundings were filled with laughter and gaiety. Soon the shadows grew large, signaling an end to the revelry that had lasted much of the day, and the wedding guests all took leave of the newlyweds who were still sitting hand in hand and starry-eyed. They both soon realized that it was time they were on their way and departed for home. However, things would soon change and grief would ensue happiness. There was one man who was despising Orpheus and desired Eurydice for his own. Aristeus, a shepherd, had plotted a plan to conquer the beautiful nymph, and there he was waiting in the bushes for the young couple to pass by. Seeing that the lovers were approaching, he intended to jump on them and kill Orpheus. As the shepherd made his move, Orpheus grabbed Eurydice by the hand and started running pell-mell through the forest. The chase was long, and Aristeus showed no signs of giving up or slowing down. On and on they ran, and suddenly Orpheus felt Eurydice stumble and fall, her hands slipping from his grasp. Unable to comprehend what had just happened, he rushed to her side but stopped short in dismay, for her eyes perceived the deathly pallor that suffused her cheeks. Looking around, he saw no trace of the shepherd. So she had stepped on a viper's nest and was inflicted with her venom. So then from there, he grieves her death and goes to the underworld and makes that bargain with Hades under the condition he can leave with her but can't turn to her until both of them are in the sunlight. And so when I skimmed that version and after seeing the Hades Town play and rereading Dicey and Orpus, I thought this... Tale is also woven into the A Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Mass. We have Tamlin and Feyre. Their story closely follows Beauty and the Beast, Tamlin being the Beast and Feyre being Belle. There is a summer solstice celebration and Tamlin is a fiddle player and he's a very good fiddle player. Feyre, who is At this point, a mortal woman is drinking fey wine, and she's dancing, and she's feeling at one with her environment, and she's locking eyes with Tamlin, and he's playing this song for everybody, but when he's looking at her, it's for her. And so they're stuck in this moment together, and it is very pivotal in their relationship. And she is in love with him. But as this book progresses, and certainly as the series progresses, spoiler alerts for anybody who has not yet read this masterpiece, we have a scene of Tamlin and Feyre's wedding day. Feyre is very nervous to walk down to meet her husband-to-be, the groom, Tamlin. Her mind is screaming, she's feeling this isn't right. For some reason, she just is very torn in this decision. And so someone hears her cry for help. He is a god of darkness. He comes to this wedding party uninvited, he crashes it more or less, and whisks away the bride. Very much how this Greek tale was saying that shadows fell upon the wedding day. Darkness. Everyone took that as their sign. It was time to go home. Her cry for help was answered by Ryzand. He had this bond with her because they had made a bargain together. The bargain being, I will heal your broken arm if you give me a week of your time once a month from Tamlin. And so she makes the bet because she's more or less forced to do it. It's pretty much her only option. In this scenario, Rizan being Hades, he is high lord of the night court. That seems similar enough to the underworld, a world of darkness. So then we have Tamlin grieving for the bride that was never to be or a love that was never able to bloom. And as High Lord of the Spring Court, I think you could even weave a little bit of Persephone into that, who is also a character in Hadestown, which I have to admit, as I was reading the novel, that didn't cross my mind at all. But I also wasn't very familiar with the tale of Orpheus and Eurydice. So it's just interesting how you discover another layer of something. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.